What would it take, and so I apologize for my voice, um, baseball game, and then working most of the day yesterday, yelling at people, stand up, stand up, Sam knows what I'm talking about, all right, standing up on this big 19-foot pole, it's very difficult to convince people to do that, and so after doing that all day and yelling at these goobers all day at baseball, my voice is a little tired, so I'll try to inflect a little bit and say, talk loud enough, so if you can't hear me, just wave and say, I can't hear you, all right, so um, here's my thing, what would it take to knock George Washington off Mount Rushmore. And now I'm not talking physically, all right? And I'm talking about blowing stuff up or anything, all right? Don't, don't get me wrong, all right? We're not going to go jihad on us, all right? But what would it take for people to go, you know what? That Washington guy, I think we need to replace him with this new guy. What, what about knock him off the dollar bill, all right? Now that's just politics in these days, evidently, all right? Knock him off the quarter. What, what would it take for us as Americans to go, you know that Washington guy, he just doesn't, he's not good enough. Trump. Trump, there you go, thank you baby, I'll hear that. I receive that message, alright? Holy Spirit is in the place today, I can feel it. Alright Shay? <laughs> I like where you're going with that baby. Alright, but what would it take? What, what kind of president would it take for us to go, you know what? All those guys on Rushmore, you know, they, they just, we just need to, Knock all them off and make one, one rush more with this guy's face on it. What would it take? Can you imagine the magnitude of that person? Can you imagine what it would take to do something like that? Because, yes? yes? There are already people who want to take the founding fathers off without rush more. I don't know if you've <laughs> they, they sure, we could, we're going to start knocking them out. Because they own slaves and, you know, so, so on and so forth. And but think about the guys who are up there, all right? Now, there's like four of you in the room, maybe they can tell me who all of them are, all right? So, you got Washington up there. Give me another one. Lincoln's up there. Uh, Roosevelt's up there. And Millard Fillmore. Yeah, you nailed it. Dang. That was good trivia right there. The interesting thing is, what they say about Fillmore is that he, I think he was the one that had the most beautiful wife of all the first ladies or something. Yeah, something. Exactly, they should have. She was a lot more consequential. No, who was it? Jefferson. Jefferson, very good. So what would it take to knock these presidents off there? To, to put it where, not, not in some, oh, we don't like him anymore, but no, it's, it's like, yeah, those guys were good, but this guy. Holy cow. How do you knock those guys off? Because here's what I want you to see. In Hebrews 3, we're taking Moses and we're going, you know what, Moses? You were good, but you're not that good. You're not that good, Moses. Go ahead. Would you want to say it? I would just say the difference, in my opinion, between like the two examples that you're giving yeah. is the little history kind of like stands the test of time. Like pastors tend to preach the same like messages History. Yeah, we just got we just got one book, so right. that's all we have to work with. Sure. Yeah, scary. So. I know. I mean, I look at Caden and I go, "He wasn't even born when 9/11 happened." Yeah. All right, Holland. We have a picture of Holland, like as a little baby, crawling up on the TV, 
she was uh, like seven months old. So yeah, these are his stories, and they do change. And this story doesn't change. So I, I want us to kind of get in here, and I want you to think Moses in the mind of the first century believer. All right, L- let's get a take on this. What was what was the perception of Moses in the first? Was he sort of tired? Was he old news? Were they going, you know, this Moses guy, you know, he had his time. But that was like 1,500 years ago. Let's, can we get a new person on the scene? Is that how he would have been regarded? What was it like for the people of the first century who were going to receive this letter? Again, remember, we're reading somebody else's mail. This is not some historical book called Hebrews, all right? I didn't call it the book of Hebrews. It's the letter to the Hebrews, okay? So again, your, your vocabulary is going to change your perception. It's going to change the way you study and read your Bible. So when you see it as the letter to the Hebrews, you're understanding this, that somebody wrote the letter to these first century Jewish believers and said, you need to think through your faith in this way. And one of the things they knock out, I mean, we, we knock out some pretty cool things, right? First thing out of the box is, you know what? God used to speak through those prophet guys like Elijah, but now he's spoken through his son. So the son's better than the prophet's. And these angel guys who did, did stuff like showed up in the burning bush. Yeah, that was awesome. That was cool. That was really good. But now Jesus is here. And he starts knocking them out one by one by one. He said, oh yeah, you think David was a really good king, but we got a coming king that was better than David, better even than Solomon. You think the sacrifices are these beautiful things that we do in the temple and the altar? Jesus sacrificed at Calvary was better. So what's this author doing to all of these revered things in the Jewish faith? One by one, he's going, Jesus was better. Jesus was better. Now, how are they receiving these messages? I feel like they'd be like, that's like sacrilege. To, they'd be like those of us that, if, well, when you, the people that stand on the flag and burn the flag, if you do the same thing with George Washington and you say he's getting less and, you know, wasn't even a great man, he was nothing. A lot of people take great offense at that because you're an American, and you can't do that. There, there is no way, and he can't defend himself. So, sure. you, I just feel like to them, they're like, that's, you can't do that to Moses or to any of the prophets. You can't say somebody's better. So, do you feel tension? Go ahead, Brinkley. I was going to say history's history. Yeah. So, but do you feel the tension in the letter? The tension of, he's better than the prophets, he's better than the angels, he's better than Solomon, he's better than the sacrifice, the sacrificial system, and now he's going to dare to drop that he's better than Moses. Do you feel the tension of that? The question is, do you feel the hope of that? Do you go, are you kidding? How many of you, if I said, here's the thing, I've seen the future, God has given me a vision, the Holy Spirit came down on me last night and revealed this to me, that the present elected in this next election, is going to be better than Washington, better than Lincoln, better than Roosevelt, better than Jefferson. He's going to make us forget those guys even existed. Not that those guys were bad, but he's so much better. Do you feel the tension in this, of this, no, he's not? All right, because here's the thing. Go to the Republican National Convention and, and, and just start yelling, Reagan is not as good as the next guy we're going to elect. How's that going to go over? Whoa! You can, I mean, that's like, I mean, I should have used Reagan as the example to start with, right? Because what? You talk about Reagan? Oh. Even Rush Limbaugh, Rinaldus Magnus is what he calls him. The great Ronald Reagan. Right? But the next one is better? 
do you feel the tension in this of the, oh, no, he's not, and are you kidding? He really is better? So I want you to feel this tension that the first century believers were having. Now, let's do this. I mean, we got other patriarchs up here, right? Abraham, he's a pretty big guy in this mix, right? But compare and contrast Abraham and what he did to Moses and what he did. How, how would you differentiate between the two? How would you compare and contrast them? Because these are big name guys, right? Abraham is the father of all the Jewish line, all right? Moses was in there, but what's the difference? How would you compare and contrast them? What they did, what they didn't do, how, who they were, what do you say? Anyone? Anyone want to take a shot at this? I'm like going 401, class, Old Testament 401 with you guys this morning, aren't I? Daniel, jump in here, get some of this, all right? How would you compare? Ashley, I know you got something to say. How would you com- compare and contrast Abraham, who was big time, with Moses? What did they do? What did they not do? What did they, h- how would you place them in the, on the Rushmore of Jerusalem? Similarity. They both listen to God. They both listen to God, yeah. I have. Yeah, go. Uh, Abraham never doubted God. He kept doing what he told him to do. Moses didn't want to do what God told him to do. He had to be persuaded. But he did eventually do. Moses had some personality issues. Yeah. He was a little nervous. But is that doubt or is that like... like I think it was self-doubt. Yeah. I, I think yeah. the, the, yeah. the doubts Moses expressed were mostly self-doubt. I don't think... Abraham... You know, I love Abraham because anytime God told him to do what to do, he did it. And he was cool. But when God was silent, he really did stupid things, which none of us can identify with that, right? None of us can identify with that. As long as God's telling us to do it and we got a word, we're good. When, when God's silent, we're going, oh, what do I do now? Oh, let's go do this stupid thing. Okay? And that's what Abraham did. But I want you to think about this. In sort of the, the, the pantheon of Israel's history, what did Abraham actually do? Do. Moses, Moses, did, like, Moses did, did stuff. There you go. Slavery. He did all that stuff. Abraham was Abraham. He just, he, he he just was Abraham. Abraham. He was old, but he didn't lead exactly. And, and so do you feel it? Go ahead. What were you saying? He did fulfill it. Well, they both fulfilled their role. But here's what I want you to think through. And I think Angela nailed it. Abraham just was Abraham. He was just faithful in what he was did. Did he lead grand armies? Did he do anything massive? No. He just was faithful. He did what God told him to do. Moses gets the big job. Now, here's the thing. When God is talking to Abraham, Genesis 12, we get the promise. I will bless all the nations through you. All the world will be blessed through you. Blah, blah, blah. He says, it's a big thing. Now leave your people. Come over here and I'll tell you what to do. He gets over here in 15 and he goes, God, I got no kids still. You told me you would make me a great nation. I got no kids. And God says, come here. I want to show you something. Look at the stars. Count them. And Abraham's going, yeah, whatever. All right, because they didn't have streetlights back then, right? All right, so lots of stars, right? So he's going, wow, this is amazing. And Abraham just believed God. And then God started saying, here, let me show you some promises. And let me show you some signs because I'm going to give you more kids than these stars. And I'm going to give you a, this land that you're in, Okay. So the promise is what? Offspring and land. Okay? Is Moses integral in one of those? Moses was one of the offspring, but did he have anything to do with that promised land thing? Yeah, he's the one that took them there. Okay? He didn't get to go in. That's a whole other issue. 
Was, he inter- was God going, I'm going to take them and I'm giving them this beautiful land? Was God going, gee, I wonder how I'm going to do this? Or did he have a guy in mind? Now he gives them promises. He said, now check this, Abraham. Here's the signs that are going to verify that this promise came true. You're going to be stranger and your people are going to be oppressed and eventually enslaved. And that period is going to be 400 years. But I'm going to judge that nation. I'm going to judge the nation that oppressed your people. Does Moses have anything to do with that? Yes or no? The plagues? Did Moses have anything to do with the plagues? Hello, wake up. Did Moses have anything to do with the plagues? Yes. He's a, and then he says, and you're going to plunder those people when you leave. What did Moses tell them as they were heading out the door in Egypt? Go to your neighbors and say, hey, do you mind if I borrow a cup of sugar and all of your jewelry and all of your possessions and all of your cattle and all this? And what did the Egyptian people do? Go and take it and go away. You've messed us up enough. Was Moses integral into the plan of God, even as he's speaking to Abraham about creating this beautiful nation? The first words of Exodus 20, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now you will have no other gods before me. And he starts clicking off the Ten Commandments. Who was the man God used to do that? When the Jewish people look back, who do they go He's the one that brought us out. In the same way we look at the Revolutionary War and go, Washington is the man that won. You see, you see that, that, that comparison I'm trying to make? So when you start to say, Jesus is better, you need to understand there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of baggage we're taking in this. Now, what else does Moses do? He gives them the Torah. He writes the Pentateuch. He gives them the tabernacle, the design of the tabernacle. Moses is giving them. What, we're still working this at the temple, right? The temple is still there. What's the temple look like? The tabernacle that Moses gave the design of the people to them. He was the instrument God used to do all these amazing things. He gave them the law at Sinai. The law they're still using, the sacrificial system, the way they sacrifice, still being used 1,500 years later. Moses gave us that. Moses gave us the tabernacle. Moses gave us the law. Moses gave us our freedom. Moses is a pretty big deal. There are 15 Old Testament books after the story of Moses, after the Pentateuch, where Moses is mentioned. 15 Old Testament books. He's mentioned in 12 of the New Testament books. So what does that tell us about this guy? What does this tell us about him? He even gets to show up at the transfiguration of Christ. Christ is up on a high mountain. He's with his disciples. And all of a sudden, Christ turns what? His clothes turn what? White. How white? White. Like white. Like white. All right. All right. That's an old joke. Sorry. If you weren't here, sorry, you missed out. All right. So he's closer. And who shows up? Moses and Elijah. And Peter goes, hey, I've seen that Moses guy in pictures. I did a Google search one day. I got his image came up. And now that's how I know. I always wondered how they knew because they never went, hey, Jesus, who's the guy? Who's the old guy that you with you? All right. Oh, you didn't know that was Moses. And they're like, no way. Are you kidding me? That's like George Washington showing up in your history class, Amy. All right, that'd be pretty cool. All right, it's like a Bill and Ted's thing you got working there. All right, but here's the thing. Also, look at the end of the story. There's gonna be two witnesses in the end days. Two witnesses. And the description of them is very similar to the things that Elijah and Moses did. So is Moses, is he like this forgotten character? No, Jesus is just better. Now let's read how the, how the author of Hebrews describes this. <clears throat> Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, 
and companions in a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all of God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, when they read that, what are they thinking? For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses. Oh, do you feel the tension right there? The tension of, whoa, is he really? And wow, is he really? Just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Verse five, here it is. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if, if, are words like if important? What if not? That's the question you always need to ask. We, let me read again, and we are that house. We are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. Again, what's the, the, the lingering thing in the letter to the Hebrews? Don't drift away from Christ. Know that he's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Solomon. He's better than the sacrificial system. He's better than all these things. Now he's better than Moses. So don't drift away. And again, you've got to remember this, people. We are reading someone else's mail. Don't just read this and go, well, how does this apply to my life? No, 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 don't do that. Go, how did this apply to their life? And let me read it through that lens. Not just go, hey, let me get my study for the week. Because we're reading someone else's mail. So when he said, if we hold on, you've got to understand that first century Jewish believers were being torn and being torn back towards the sort of the tenets of Judaism and torn away from Christ. And the whole point of the letter is, how will you escape if you neglect such a great salvation as Christ? How are you gonna do it if you drift back here? How are you gonna do it if you drift back here? Now, here's what I want us to think through. We've got these two things. It said Moses was what? He was faithful as what? A servant. All right, now this is an interesting word. I'm gonna throw you the Greek up here. Therapon, all right? Therapon is the word only used this one time. Now, normally we get words, instead of therapon for a servant, we get the word diakonon, all right, from which we get our word what? Anybody see hear a word in there? Deacon, all right, which means what? Those who rule over the pastor, right? No, it doesn't mean that. It starts, it comes from the word dioko, which means to run or to pursue. It means those who put on their running shoes and go do stuff. Not those who sit in a fancy room and tell the pastor what he should preach on and what he should do, all that stuff. That's why we don't have deacons around here. You know why? Because you're all deacons. You're all diaconon. You're all called to go chase after people and do beautiful things. That's what a deacon is supposed to be. All right? Now, the other word we get is doulos. Doulos is the guy, you remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet? That was the doulos' job. Now, what kind of a job was that? Good job? Good job if you can get it? All right, Landon, you want to be that guy, foot-washing guy? All right, no, nah, that's kind of nasty, all right? Because you got guys walking in and they go, hey, Landon, doulos, come here. All right, which means what? You're nothing, slave. Diakonon is more of the servant in the house, all right? This word therapon is a different word. It's only used here this one time that Moses was a therapon. He was one who was almost an honored servant, a willing servant, one who gladly did what he was called to do and did it very well. 
So it's more of an, an exalted. So he was a therapon, and we're going to use the Greek word in, which means in the house of God. And then he contrasts. He says, but Jesus, Moses was the therapon in the house. Jesus was what? The son, where? What's the, what's the preposition? Over the house. All right, so I'll get fancy on you again. The weos, epi. Epi means on, on top of, above. It's a, it's a place above things, all right? So the weos is the sun. Now, what's the difference between these two? Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Do you want to be the servant in the house or the son over the house? Which is the more exalted position? Which one gets the more honor? Which one gets the more glory? And Jesus, the author is saying, Jesus was the weos, epi, the son over the house. Moses was just the servant in the house. Now, how well would that go over at the time of Christ in his last days? How well would this message go over with the Pharisees in the last days? In the last days of Christ, Christ is on the earth, he's doing his thing, he's coming real close to his crucifixion, which should give you a big clue as to where the answer to this question, right? When he says that Moses, he's just a servant in the house. Jesus is a son above the house. Let's look at some of these. I want to knock out three of these things and see if we can't draw some points out. So go to John 9. You can kind of lose Hebrews. Uh, You can remember that. The point is right there. In John 9... Let me give you the context. I want us to look at about a, probably about a six-month time frame, maybe a year time frame, in the life of Christ, rolling into just after the resurrection of Christ where there's some conflict that comes in. Now, one day Jesus goes to the... Um, he's in Jerusalem, all right? And it's a Sabbath day, so guess what Jesus does on the Sabbath day? What does Jesus like to do on the Sabbath day? Heal, heal people. Why? Because he likes to heal people? There's a point to this, right? All right, I think Jesus had a lot of my personality, all right? And, and Robert's my coworker at, my, at our Chuck E. Cheese up by Lake Point. And, and so Robert's kind of figured out, I kind of like to poke people, all right? I kind of like to irritate people and see what they'll do. And I think Jesus was the same way. I think he liked to poke people. And I think he went, hey, it's a Sabbath. <laughs> Let's go heal somebody. <laughs> Let's go heal somebody and see what happens. Because what he walks into uh, the synagogue one day, he knows it's the Sabbath. He sees the guy with the hand. He sees these guys waiting, watching, and what does he do? Hey, bud, come here. Let's have some fun right now. He, he nails these guys. What, what should I do? Should I heal him or not? And they're like silent. He goes, buddy, you're healed. Have a good day. See you. Well, this time he's got a blind guy. It's a blind man sitting at the beautiful gate, and he's there. <clears throat> he says, come on. Go wash and put mud on his eyes. He washes his eyes. It's the Sabbath day. This guy that was blind is now seeing, and everybody's kind of freaking out because this this is an amazing thing, but yet it was on the Sabbath, all right? And the Pharisees are freaking out about this whole thing, all right? And I want to jump to um, verse 13. I'm in John 9, 13. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. So again, the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told him. I wash, I can see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, 
They asked the blind man, what, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received sight. They asked the parents, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he see? We know this is our son, that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we do not know how he sees. We do not know how he opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. Basically, the Pharisees had threatened anybody that says he's the Christ is going to be kicked out of the synagogue. Verse 34, or 24, excuse me. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I know, do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? <laughs> I like this guy. I like blind guy. Why? Because what did he just do to the Pharisees? Hey, do you want to be his disciple? Yeah, I think that went over real well. All right, 20, 26. They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. Important verse right there. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the blind man told him. You don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. Now, here's my point. I want you to see this. In the first century, at the time of Christ, at the time of his crucifixion, what did the Pharisees claim for themselves? They said, we are whose disciples? Moses' disciples. Now, what happens when someone comes along and says, your, your master, your rabbi that you follow, that you do whatever he says, he was just a servant in the house. This one is a son over the house. How's that going to go over right there? Is that going to go over well? No, you are not going to talk. No, exactly. He says, we don't even know who this guy is. But Jesus is on the scene. And Jesus is showing himself to be greater than Moses. Day by day by day. He says, we know Moses, but we don't know Jesus. Now here's the question. 30 years later, 25 years later, whatever it was. Are they still having that discussion? Are, they still, are there still people in Jerusalem saying, we still don't know who this Jesus is. We are going to be Moses' disciples, and we're going to be disciples of Moses till the day we die because we like Moses, and that's all we're going to do is like Moses. And we're going to go to our temple, and we're going to do our sacrifices, and we're going to do our thing because that's what we are. That's who we are. We are disciples of Moses. And my question is, whose disciple are you? Now, you can sit here and you can say, oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe he was better than Moses. I believe all these things. And he is my rabbi and I follow him and I do what he says. But how many of you, your faith is this? Rules, do's and don'ts, be at the right place, walk in the right building, do the right thing. And that is your faith. How many of you claim to be disciples of Christ but really, you're just a disciple of Moses. You're a disciple of the Ten Commandments still. 
you're a disciple of being good and being in the right building and doing the right thing and doing it in the right way. And you're, di- you're not a disciple of one who died on the cross and said, now, just go love everybody. Just go love everybody in the same way that I loved you. You see, whose disciple are you really? Are you a disciple, a follower, a learner, a student of the rules, of the game of Christianity, of the game of church world? Are you a disciple of the one who died in your place and told you, go do beautiful, loving, amazing acts? Which one are you? Which one do you follow? You see, these Pharisees, they knew who they were and they admitted it freely. We don't know this Jesus guy. We don't claim all the things he's doing. We have rules around here and we follow those rules. And we're getting all over this Jesus guy because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. He did something beautiful. Can you imagine what it would be like to be blind and then be made able to see and somebody go, that's not very nice. That's not the way we do things around here. Can you imagine what that would be like? Where's the celebration? This man's life has been beautifully altered. And yet these guys are disciples of what? The rules. How many times do you hear of someone coming to faith in Christ in this beautiful moment and you're sitting there going, well, I know who they used to be and I'm not real sure about their conversion. You know what? Shut up. No one wants to hear from you. No one wants to hear anything from you ever again until you come to the point where you celebrate what happened in this person's life. Because here's the question, whose disciple are you really? You see, you're going to look like your rabbi. You're always going to look like your rabbi. That's the goal of the disciple. Let's go to another one. Come over to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, let me give you the context because there's three rules of good biblical interpretation. Number one is read it in context. Number two is read it in context. And the third rule is what? Read it in context. Okay, you got that? You good? You good? Can we go? All right, let's go. 21, here we go. I'm going to talk about these wicked servants. All right, now you need to understand the context of this is Jesus is is probably like Tuesday of the Passion Week. Jesus is going to be crucified in about three days. And he's going to have a moment where he is in the temple courts and he is going to be having it out with the Pharisees. All right. And they are going to be coming after him and he's going to take shots at them. He's going to go right back at him. And I love the verse in there that says no one dared to ask him any more questions because he shut them up once and for all. And I love the fact it says he never, no one dared to ask any more questions because they're like, uh, uh-uh, I ain't messing with him anymore because he'll get me, because he throws this parable out there. I'm in 21, verse 33. Jesus says to them this, and he's talking to the religious leaders. So these religious leaders who've already said just previously, we are Moses' disciples. We do what Moses says, because Moses is the guy. He gave us the law. He gave us the temple. He gave us the tabernacle. He gave us the Torah. That's who we follow. We don't follow this other guy. We don't know who this Jesus guy is. So Jesus says to them, listen to another parable, guys. There was a man, the landowner, who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower, leased it to his tenant farmers, and went away. When the grape harvest drew near, he sent his slaves, or his servants, to the farmers to collect his fruit. But the farmers took his slaves, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first group, and they did the same 
to them. Now, who are these? Jesus is telling a parable. This is Old Testament history, right? He plants a vineyard. The vineyard is always a symbol of Israel, right? How did, what did he do to this? Look, look at all the details in this. He plants a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower. What does that mean? What is God doing? God did all these things for the nation of Israel. A fence? Who, who puts a fence up? Now, these days, we put a fence up to do what? To keep our dog inside, right? Back then, what did they, why did they build a fence? How many of you build a fence around your house to protect you from the neighbors? Maybe from your neighbor's dog, all right? But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. He put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. What's God doing to his vineyard, Israel? Do you see the protection and the care and the provision for it? He says, I did all these things. He leases it out. He, the grape harvest comes, and they're not paying their fair share. So he sends servants. Who are these servants? Come on, think. Prophets. prophets. The prophets. He sends them again and again. And what happens to the prophets? He kills them. They kill them. They kill them. Almost every single one of the prophets dies a tragic death. Jeremiah was saved because God made a promise. He said, you go be courageous, and I'll protect you. Jeremiah is one of the few that doesn't die this painful death. But then here in verse 37, finally, he sent his son to them. Do you see this? Do you see what Jesus is doing three days before he's crucified? God's been sending you prophets for all these years. He took care of you. He planted you. He did all this beautiful stuff. He's been sending his prophets to bring you back to him all this time. Finally, he sent his son The servants were never going to be enough. Y'all with me? Think about this. The servants were never, ever going to be enough. He had to send his son. The son had to be sent. Now, I want you to think about two guys. In, in Genesis 15, Abraham is talking with God, and he says, God, you haven't given me a son. He said, if I died today, Eliezer, is my servant is going to inherit all this. And God said, no, no, no. Eliezer is not going to be your heir. That's not my plan. That's not the way, gonna, the way this is going to work. You will have a son because the servant is never enough. The servant is never enough in the economy of God. It's never going to be enough. We get another Abraham. He, he, he gives up on God, right? Even his wife, Sarah, says, hey, why don't you take Hagar? Why don't you have children through him? And who's born? What's his name? Ishmael. Ishmael is born. And God continues to give Abraham this promise that you're going to have a son. It's not going to be him. It's not going to be the son of the servant. It's not going to, I'm not using Ishmael. And at one point, Abraham asks the question of God. He says, if only Ishmael would be acceptable to you. What happened to Abraham? He kind of gave up, didn't he? God, why are you making this so hard? Why? Look, Ishmael's right here. Can't that be enough? Isn't this acceptable to you? And God says, no, 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 no. The servant will never, ever be enough. Neither was Moses. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats is never going to take away sin. Your list of do's and don'ts you're following some law, some code, is never, ever going to take away your sin. 
the servant, Moses, who gave us the bulls and the goats, who gave us the do's and the don'ts, was never, ever, ever going to be enough to satisfy the justice of God. The son had to come. Now, here's the question. What did they do with the son? They killed him. What will the audience of Hebrews do with the son? That's the question on the table. And finally, what will you do with him? What will you do with the son of God that had to come? That had to come because the blood of bulls and goats was never going to be enough. The list of do's and don'ts, even the Ten Commandments, as, as, as exalted as they are, was never going to be enough. What have you done with the son? And here's the scary thing to me that I was thinking about this week. How, how many of these things do we go to God and go, God, why can't this be acceptable enough? Why can't I just show up in a building once a week? Why can't that be my, check my box, hey, get into heaven free card. God, why can't that just be enough? Why, why can't I just, you know, as long as I read this book, I'll, I'll read this book all the time. God, will this be acceptable? Can I come into your presence if I have read this book over and over, however many times? If I memorize 500 passages of scripture, hey, good job, gold star, love you to death, but hey, that's not gonna get you into heaven. It is never gonna satisfy the justice of God. Only the blood of his son was going to do it. And whatever these things are that you say, God, if only this would be acceptable to you, it's never, ever going to be enough. And it was never going to be enough for the Hebrews. Ever. Because nothing can satisfy that except the blood of his son. The perfect, matchless, innocent blood of the Lamb of God, the Son of God. Let's go one more. Acts 6. We're probably a year, maybe two years after the resurrection, maybe even as short as six months after the resurrection. And the church is just booming and it's growing and it's blowing up. But we still got the Pharisees that are fighting this thing. We still got the opposition. So the disciples are, are doing their thing in Jerusalem, all right? And, and they're doing amazing things after Pentecost and into, into the months after this. And we get some conflict in the church because evidently some people, some of the widows were not being served as faithfully as other widows were being served. And so the disciples said, all right, we can't sit around and, and serve food all day because we've got to go preach the gospel. We've got to go in the temple courts and we've got to tell the story of Jesus over and over and over and over and over again. So let's appoint these deacons, all right, our diaconons, our servants. And these guys will come in. And the first one on the list is a guy named Stephen. All right, now Stephen's serving meals and he's being faithful. And he's full of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden he starts having conversations with people and he's just tearing it up. This guy has a wisdom about him. He sees the beauty of this. He looks at this and goes, Moses was a servant, but Jesus was the son. He's like, that's awesome. I'm all in with that. I'm all in with that story. I'm running with that story. Love Moses, love what he did, but I'm following Jesus. And I'm gonna stand on the shoulders of Moses and I'm gonna follow Jesus in all these things. And he's saying all these things. Well, he runs into this group called the Freedmen's Society. And these Freedmen, there's a guy in the mix of all this. His name is Saul, and he's from a place called Tarsus. And Saul thinks he's pretty smart because he grew up at the feet of a guy named Gamaliel, one of the most vaunted teachers in all of, of Judaism at the time. And Saul and Stephen seem to have this sort of rivalry thing of where one's talking and the other's talking. They're trying to argue about who the Messiah was and who wasn't the Messiah. And eventually Saul's going to get him dragged before the Sanhedrin. But I want you to see what happens here before this. I'm in 
Since Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some from what was called the Freedmen Society, or this Freedmen Synagogue, or the place where people gather, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia. All right, you wonder where I got Saul in there? Tarsus is in the region of Cilicia. Okay? So some from Cilicia and Asia, which is sort of uh, Ephesus, came forward and disputed with Stephen. But they were unable to stand against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Any red flags on there? Can you speak blasphemous words against Moses? What what are they saying? If they're claiming he spoke blasphemous words against Moses, what have they done? What is the mindset of the person who says that? Where's Moses in their mindset? Talk to me. God. He's... Moses and God, all right? No one's ever put that in a sentence. Hey, we heard that guy speaking blasphemous words against Bubba and God. That's just a funny sentence anyway, all right? I get it, all right? But no, I've never been equated, put in the sentence next to God, okay? Keep going with it. They stirred up the people, the elders and scribes. So they came and dragged him off and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witness who said, this man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place, the temple, all right, and the law. Now, did anybody like Moses have a role in the holy place, the temple, and the law? Moses gave us the tabernacle. Moses gave us the law, all right, integral parts. He said, again, they're exalting Moses in this whole thing. For we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Who is Jesus coming here and change all the rules that Moses set up? Hello, come over here with me. Who is Jesus to change all the customs that Moses set up? Seems like that's exactly who he is. He's the son over the house who's changing the rules of the servant who serves in the house. And if you'll just get this right, it's such a beautiful thing. But what were they fighting for? What were they fighting? We want this guy. We want the servant's rules. We want to follow his rules, not to just live in the beauty of the son's reign. That's the scary thing about this whole thing. They're living in this, and they're doing all these things. All right, Stephen actually believed the words of Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 says, there's a prophet coming. There's a prophet coming and you will be held accountable to how you listen to him. And Stephen takes the words of Moses, the beautiful words of Moses that Moses gives, and Stephen goes, Moses told us about Jesus. He's standing before the Sanhedrin, and this is over here in 737, somewhere in there, and he's saying, look, don't you guys get it? We love Moses. Moses is awesome. He was great. He was this amazing servant in the house. But Moses told us about the prophet that was coming. And you guys crucified him. How'd that go over? How'd that sermon end? What did they do to Stephen? Stephen stands up and says, I believe that Jesus was the prophet. I believe he was the Messiah. And I'm going to live my life as long as it lasts for the next 12 minutes, glorifying him and talking about Jesus 
who was the prophet, who was the Messiah, and who is my king. And they did what to him? Stoned him. And they said when they stoned him, he looked up to heaven. And he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You know, it's interesting how people of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, talk like Jesus talked. I guarantee you, Paul never, ever forgot the face of Stephen. He never forgot what that looked like to see a man so devoted to the understanding Jesus was better than Moses and to see how that man died. I guarantee you it haunted Paul till the day he died. Why? Because he saw faith. He saw a man that said, you know what? All I can work with here is this faith that I believe that that man that died on that cross and was resurrected and the story that's going out, I believe he's the one God's been telling us about and I'm gonna give all of my life to pursuing him and pursuing all that he is. How did he die? How did he live? Do you want to do that too? You see, here's my questions. Number one, whose disciple are you really? Don't give me this, I'm a disciple of Jesus when all you think about is rules, rules, rules. Number two, what are you trying to make acceptable to God? What have you done with his son and what are you, what are you trying to replace him with? What are you trying to say? God, I'll, I'll walk into a building. Just don't make me follow that Jesus guy because he's like out there. That's radical, crazy stuff if I follow it. Let me walk into a building. Let me read a book. Here, you want a check? I'll write you a check. Let, let me do all these things. I'll go on a mission trip. Just don't make me do something radical in my world and in my life because I want all these other things to be acceptable. I want, I want Moses to be acceptable. Just let me do my rules. Number three, what do you believe? Was Jesus really better than Moses? Because it cost something. It cost Stephen his life. It cost him his very life. I love what David says when he's building this altar. He goes to this guy's house named Aaron, and he goes to his house, and he says, Aaron, I need to build an altar here to stop this plague that God's put on our nation. And God told me to build it right here. And Aaron comes out and goes, here, take my oxen, take my, the yokes. You can make all this wood and use all this stuff. You can build all this here. You can have it. And David says, no, somebody give the man some money because I will not sacrifice to my God something that costs me nothing. Your faith will cost you something. But isn't that the beauty of it? Isn't that the, the, the romance of your faith? Yeah, it's going to cost me something. But look at what I'm going to get in return. Look at what I've already received in return. That's why I'm doing it. I saw what he did at Calvary. Now I get to live my life in this beautiful turn of events that I talked with the FCA about on Friday. Do you believe that? Do you believe Christ is better? And how will you escape if you neglect such a great salvation? That's what the Hebrew church had to be confronted with. And I think that same issue is still on the table for us. How will you escape if you neglect such a beautiful, romantic, powerful salvation? Let's pray.